We can turn back to the chapter we read there from the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. And just think about what's described there by Isaiah himself when he saw the king. You don't know why Isaiah's in the temple. Maybe he is there for some important role, because he is a prophet. Whatever else is said about this particular incident, it's not the commencement of him being a prophet. He's already been a prophet, as we can see in the first five chapters. So here we have a an occasion when something happened to him as a prophet. But whether he's there in official duties or just there by himself, because you go up to the temple anytime you wanted and worship God individually, we're just not told. And since we're not told, it doesn't matter. But we are told some things about it, and I just want us to look at these together. We're told about the time, when it happened. We're told about a throne, and the throne is dominant throughout it. We're told about the trauma that Isaiah the prophet felt. And we're told about the task that he was reminded of. The time. Well, it was a very significant year. Because we're told it was the year that King Uzziah died. It is important to note what the verse says. It doesn't say that Isaiah went to the temple after the king died. It doesn't say the king has died when Isaiah had this vision. All it says is Isaiah had the vision during the year in which the king died. So he may have had the vision before the king died or he may have had it after the king died. If he had it before the king died, then obviously there's preparation being made for Isaiah because he's going to have to carry on his national role. After all, he is a prophet. And he would need something to, uh, to help him in the future if Uzziah dies after him, sorry, after this vision. And if he died before it, well, then we could see, we could understand why he'd want to go to the temple. But since we're not told that he had died, 
I don't think it's wise to assume that he had died. What kind of king was Uzziah? Well, he became king when he was 16, very young. And he reigned for 52 years, a long time. You can read in 2 Chronicles 26 of his very successful reign. It was a good time to be alive when Uzziah was king. Things were very prosperous. Progress was being made in all different areas. The army was strong. Surrounding nations deferred to him. And we're told that for much of his reign, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Sadly, We're told he had one sin, and that one sin led to a drastic action. We tend sometimes, I think, to focus on his drastic action. When he attempted to take part in the worship of God in the temple, which he was forbidden to do, But that particular outrageous sin was the result of an inner attitude. And his inner attitude, we're told by it, in the Chronicles, we're told, was pride. He thought, since he was king, he could do what he wanted. And because he did that um, and attempted to offer uh, sacrifice at the altar he was struck with leprosy and the remaining years of his reign were spent in isolation and his son had to reign with him and of course Uzziah is a reminder to us it's not enough to start well. It's not even enough to continue well. What matters is that we end well. doesn't mean that Uzziah didn't go to heaven. But it does mean that he's a warning to us. Of course, we've had a queen who served us well to the end. And we should be thankful for that. In the year that she passed away, we can look back on a life well done, a life of service. He didn't do what Uzziah did. 
Anyway, that's the time. Significant time. There were many people alive in the year that King Uzziah died that never knew a previous king. After all, he's reigned for 55 years, 52 years. And life expectancy in those days was not very long. But that's how the time is marked. The year that he died. Isaiah goes to the temple and he saw and heard the unexpected. This may have been his regular Sabbath activity. I wonder what we expect. What did we expect God to do today? What did I expect? He's the Almighty God. Surely we expect him to do something. Well, whether Isaiah had his expectations or not, he certainly saw and heard the unexpected, didn't he? I mean, there was a throne in the temple, but it was a, I suppose, in size, it was a little throne because it was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. But but no one ever saw that throne. It was inside the Holy of Holies. It was symbolic of the presence of God. But of what kind of God? Was it a symbolic God? I suppose it would be easy for someone to go up to the temple and say, well, God's got a small throne in there. Maybe he's not that big. And there were surrounding empires starting to threaten. Isaiah's ministry is going to occur when the Assyrians are on the rampage. He doesn't know that yet. But I suppose he did know that whatever was going to happen in the future, he would need God. And maybe that's why he got this divine vision. Because as I said, he already is a prophet. Verse 1 of his book says that he's ministered during the reigns of Uzziah and three others. So he certainly didn't start his ministry after Uzziah died. But maybe he had to see how big God is. Who knows? But he certainly saw and heard the unexpected. What did he see about God? 
we saw him, as we can see there in verse 1, sitting upon a throne. So he sees the sovereign God. There, not on the Ark of the Covenant. He doesn't see that throne in his vision. He sees another throne, whatever it is. Because this is a theophany. God appearing in a manner that we can see him. But he's not seeing the essence of God. But he does see him sitting on a throne, so he is sovereign. And we need to be reminded of that too, don't we? But there's many sovereigns. What else did he say about God? Well, his throne is high and elevated. And he goes on to say that the train of God's robe fills the temple. So if his robe fills the temple, where is his throne? It's a vision. And in visions you can see things that are not um, there according to the normal rules of sight. And he sees this divine throne high and lifted up, just there in the heights. God is not just sovereign over a little space, however many countries may happen to be in that space. God is the sovereign of everything. He's high and lifted up above it all, exalted, and therefore to be adored. He's singular, we might say. There's no one to compare him with. To what will you liken me, says God? We're not to take the most powerful thing we know and say, well, somehow or other, God's a bit above that. God is infinitely above it. We have no conception of his power. I mean, the universe is only a fraction of his power. It doesn't require God, any effort from God to keep the entire universe in existence. He spoke, and it was done. And he still speaks, and it remains. And when he comes to disintegrate it, which he will at the end, it will disintegrate. He's God. And he's strong. Wonder how heavy his robe was. I mean, we see robes on special occasions, don't we? And I don't know if you've looked at them, but they look very heavy. And for someone to carry them, well, they must have a bit of strength. But how about a robe that's the size of the temple? The temple in Jerusalem was huge. 
not just huge in extent, it's also huge in height. And yet, the appearance of this almighty God, just a robe that he's pulling behind him, as it were, it fills the temple. And surely that tells us that he's very strong. That he's able to, as it were, just hold that weight with ease. Shouldn't surprise us too much, of course. He's almighty. What does it matter what the weight of the big robe was? He could have lifted the temple at the same time. But anyway, we're told there, aren't we, that Isaiah saw a God that was sovereign, singular, and strong. And if that God be for us, who can be against us? He saw something else too, didn't he? He saw two attendants, the seraphim. We're not told how many seraphim were there. I suspect there were two because I think they're connected to the cherubim that were on the Ark of the Covenant where the throne of God was. Except the seraphim, they're alive. They're the burning ones. And they are the divine attendants of his throne. And we're told about them that they got six wings. With two they cover their faces. And with two they cover their feet. And with two of them they hover. And I suppose we have to ask, why are we told these things about their wings? Why do they cover their faces? I think it's a sign of humility. They're in the presence of God. And we look on a king when he gives permission. And until that happens, they cover their faces. They cover their feet. Well, I suppose... Feet just means action. And however good their actions are, and however amazing their actions are, they hide them. They don't shout about their activities. Well, why would they in the presence of God? And then they hover with the other two, or fly, as it says. But they're just doing it above the throne, so they're hovering there. And I think that means they're just waiting for service. And perhaps in the back of their minds there's a question, I wonder what I'll be doing next. Because we are told what one of them did next. But anyway, there they were. And they're speaking to one another, and they say to one another, the same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
their speech, we could say, is harmonious and incessant. And since they've already found the best thing to say, why should they try and better it? If we're in the presence of the best, all we're meant to do is say the best about him. And here these uh, seraphim, they are discovering that God is different. He's separate. He is even amongst the hosts of heaven, amongst these holy creatures who've never sinned. When they think of God, they sense real purity. They see real perfection. And they see one to whom the automatic response is praise. What else can they do? What else would they do in a perfect location? So there they are. And they are celebrating that God is triple holy. That's just a way of saying that he is. He can't be improved. His holiness is infinite. He's august, majestic, awe-inspiring. There's no one like him. I wonder, do we think that? I don't mean as a part of our creed. I mean, if someone happened to stop me and say, for example, Tesco, and said to me, you think God is holy? Yes. But if they said to me, were you thinking God was holy a minute ago? I would have to say no. Because I wasn't thinking about him. Couldn't say that about the seraphim. They're focused on God. And their focus is very far seen. Because we can see that in their statement the whole earth is full of his glory. I mean, Isaiah saw a bit of God's glory with the robe, because that's what a robe does, isn't it? It, it enhances the the presence of the king or the queen, whoever's wearing the robe. That's what it's worn for, to enhance them. And uh, Isaiah, well, he spotted that right away. This, this robe fills the temple. This God is very great. What do the seraphim see? Well, they see the whole earth is full of his glory. They're not saying that the, the whole earth exhibits its glory because it doesn't. There are sinners everywhere. But the whole earth is full of its glory. 
because there's not an inch where he is not. He's everywhere. He's not confined to the throne that they're hovering about. Above. They can look down to the earth and all they see is God is everywhere. The whole earth is full of his glory. What an amazing grasp of who God is. And we're told that the temple, well, I suppose it was a very secure building. But when these seraphim started to speak, the foundations shook. The foundations might shake, but the throne doesn't. The temple that man-made, it can shake. And indeed, this temple was going to shake. Because the Babylonians were going to raise it to the ground. But in the presence of the august almighty God, the best that men can do is shown to be very fragile. And yet at the same time, it's filled with fragrance. Because the smoke it's coming from the altar of incense. So there's this combination of the frailty of man and the fragrance of God there in his presence. What a sight Isaiah saw. Who did he see? John chapter 12 tells us who he saw. He saw Jesus. This is Jesus before he became a man. What an amazing person he was, wasn't he? It's good to see Jesus. To think about his glory and his splendor. And our recent queen did that. Then there's a trauma. Isaiah there in verse 5. Woe is me, for I am lost. I wonder what the word lost means. I don't think it means he's unconverted. I don't think it means that having been a prophet for years and now had this... Um, profound encounter with the living God that he suddenly deduces that he is now an unconverted person. I think he's saying, up until now, I thought it was appropriate for me to be in the temple. After all, that's where all worshippers go. But having seen the seraphim and having seen this unveiling of who God is, I'm lost. 
I've ascended somewhere that I never expected to be. I'm now in the land of mystery. And I've been saying quite a lot about this God. But now mine eye sees you. And I repent in dust and ashes. As Job did. Lost in the immensity of God, where his gift as a speaker, as a prophet, doesn't really count. And even though he's in the temple where all the people are praising God, he's in the midst of people of unclean lips. He's discovered something rather dramatic. That the external is not the kernel. And we tend to focus on the external. He has discovered something of God that he didn't know before. And it was good for him. Because ahead of him is a life of crisis. He doesn't know that yet. For he discovered in the present is enough for him. He's overwhelmed. He's disturbed. He's demoralized. Woe is me. No longer is it woe to other people because of this or that that they're doing. But it's woe is me for who I am. Woe is me. Even though I'm a servant of God, he says. And he's only heard the seraphim for a few minutes But that's been enough to transform his whole outlook. He hasn't heard God yet. Maybe he wondered if God's going to speak. But something has to happen before God speaks. And all of a sudden, one of the seraphim stops hovering and flies towards him. Wow. What's he going to do? He's a guardian of the throne. His role is to keep unsuitable people away. And here's Isaiah. And this seraphim, the seraph, sorry, is flying towards him. And on the way, he grabs a piece of coal or takes it with tongs from the altar. And he's heading towards Isaiah. I wonder what went through Isaiah's mind.
I mean, he's in the presence so far of a silent God. God hasn't said a word yet. But some or other he's conveyed to this seraph to head towards Isaiah with this burning coal. When he comes up to Isaiah and touches his mouth with the coal from the altar. It is interesting that the seraph doesn't touch Isaiah. It's not the touch of the seraph that helps him. It's the coal from the altar. And instead of being punished, Isaiah is purified. Purged. In a sense, protected. God has protected him by providing him with what he needs to stay in God's presence. In a very strange way, we might say that um, Isaiah discovered the grace of God, but it was a burning experience. The bits, the piece of his human makeup that was consecrated to God had to be purified. And it was. And of course there's a lesson there, isn't there? But we'll think about that when we think about the task. Because God now speaks there in verse 8. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? How many is in the audience? I mean, I've heard plenty of appeals for Christian service, but usually the room is full. How many is here to hear this divine invitation? There's only one person there before him, but this man before him, Isaiah, not the same man who came into the temple. He had come in for his time of worship in whatever state he was in. But here he is now, he's a different man. He's been touched by God. He's been cleansed. You know, and there's an obvious lesson there. Without cleansing, you cannot serve God. All of us can do as much as we like, but that without cleansing, we cannot serve God. And it's good for us to know, isn't it, what the Apostle John says, that the blood of Jesus goes on cleansing us from all sin. If we're converted, 
It was a wonderful day when we were converted. But our need for cleansing didn't stop then. Indeed, in a certain sense, it started. And Isaiah has been told this, isn't he? You've been serving me for a while, says God. But to continue in service, you need to be cleansed. And in the post-Desire era, that's what you need. Cleansing. And he was given it. God. God's invitation met with, met with an instant reply. And is it too much to say that there's not an instant reply? We haven't seen him. Isaiah, who a few minutes before is lost, now knows what he has to do. Even though he doesn't know how long he'll do it for or anything like that. As we close, just a couple of things. It's good to recognize God at times of crisis. Whether or not this incident happened before Uzziah died, he was getting old. And common sense would say he's not going to be there for long. And anyway, for the last few years, we haven't seen him. But Isaiah is getting prepared, or else he's responding to this time of crisis. And surely at a time of crisis, we need to see God. not enough to say God's on the throne. We have to see the throne. And of course, we're in a crisis. All kinds of crisis. And the only way to get through it is to see the throne and be touched by God Isaiah was called to serve in the post-Uzziah era. We are called to serve in the post-Elizabethan era. A new period has started. It just has. Things are going to change. Just inevitable. But we have to see the one who will never change. The one who is holy, holy, holy. But who is willing to touch us. And surely it's appropriate for us to do what Isaiah did. 
Here am I, Lord. Send me. Shall we pray?